Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest-growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Do you like fine art but think it might be out of your price range? Do you have a vision for a painting that you'd like to see brought to life but you just don't have the skill? I might have a solution for you. Art by Daisy. With decades of experience, Daisy offers high-quality, affordable watercolor paintings suitable for hanging in your home, office, or even as a gift. With prices starting at just $55, visit tinyurl.com backslash artbydaisy to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Death Cast. I'm your host, author, and journalist Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me. As we prepare to take our fourth look at the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski. Before we get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for the DeathCast, DeathCast Official or DeathCast Pod. You can find me on most social media platforms under any one of those monikers. However, if you want to interact with me on social media, your best bet is to either go to the Facebook group or to TikTok, where I am most active. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost, you can go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe to the show, and also leave a five-star review. They really do help with the show's algorithms and get the show out to more people. Next way you can help with the show is you can go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the deathcast. Make a one-time donation to the show. No amount is too small, obviously no amount is too large. And lastly, if you'd like to help the show out on an ongoing basis and get something back for it, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash Patreon. Where for as little as $2.99 a month, you can get access to exclusive Patreon content in the form of early ad-free shows, but also exclusive series. I just wrapped up my series on Columbine, and I just started a series, which I'm calling a living series, looking at Vincent Kennedy McMahon the former head of the World Wrestling Federation slash WWE specifically has started with a two-parter on the lawsuit against him and went through the entire lawsuit. And that's going to be continuing as this case develops. I'm also going to be looking at past controversies, lawsuits, and things of that nature. Now, I'm like a lot of other podcasts on Patreon... A lot of them, they'll give you the really good exclusive content. The more you donate, I'm believing that the show's not big enough as far as on Patreon at this point to pull a stunt like that. 
So what I do is you come in at the base level. You get it all. You get the ad-free shows. You get the exclusive series. There's two levels above that one. I believe you get a sticker. And the one above that, I believe you get a free Deathcast t-shirt after one year uh, as a member at that level. Speaking of members, i got to give shout-outs this week, as always, to my first two Patreon members, Channel and Anthony. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate it. And to a brand new Patreon member, as of the recording of this episode, Ruben signed up today. Thank you so much, Ruben. I appreciate the support, and I appreciate that you have told me that the Deathcast is your favorite podcast. There's no way to describe how good that makes me feel. People don't realize this. The Deathcast is a freeform thought podcast. I don't write a script for this show. I get the information. Most of it's already stored in my head. I have some basic notes, and I fly from there. And I really appreciate that people out there enjoy the way that I do this show. Alright, now that all that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax if you're at work. I hope this helps you get through the day. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, we discussed the final bomb that Ted Kaczynski is known to have sent. That was on April 24th of 1995. When California Forestry Associate President Gilbert P. Murray was killed in the Sacramento office of the California Forestry Association. Now, by this point, the Unabomber is all over the media in news shows and special programs, the magazines, at the checkout counter. It's everywhere as the FBI is really ramping up trying to kill this individual because now he's killed three people. And that is why he was given the designation of a serial killer by the FBI because their designation is an individual who kills three or more individuals with a considerable cooling off period in between each victim as opposed to a spree killer who kills people, a group of people in quick succession By quick succession, I mean they kill one or two people on one day, and then the next day they continue on and on and on until until they're stopped. Or a mass murderer who kills uh, multiple people in a single location. Serial killers kill their victims in multiple locations over a considerable period of time. Anyways, the FBI is really ramping up trying to track this man down. They've got the tip line going on, and all they have is the one police sketch that's circulating from 1987. And then Ted Kaczynski makes the biggest mistake of his criminal career. On June 28, 1995, both the New York Times and the Washington Post received a 35,000-word manifesto typed by the Unabomber stating that this needs to be printed or I will set off another bomb and kill more people. 
Now, I happen to have two copies of this manifesto. It's entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. And while I agree with much of what Kaczynski puts forward in this manifesto, I draw the line where he talks about killing people, and he does mention this inside of the manifesto, making statements such as, you know, it has been necessary for us to do these things for, to, for the preservation of nature and in an effort to take down the technocracy. Now, the newspapers did not print this manifesto straight away. Instead, they sent it, copies of it to the FBI for analysis because they wanted to know what they should do. And I'm not a fan of mainstream media, but I have to give them credit at this point in time, back in this era, the media were not the propaganda machines they are today, and I don't care what side of the frickin' bird you fall on, it's all fucking propaganda. Back then, they actually reported the news for the most part, and at, unlike today, where there's a very good possibility that if they got their hands on something like this, they'd just publish it right away, they understood that there was a greater common good than just getting the news out there to the people of getting this information to the FBI in the hopes that it would stop this individual from committing the acts that he was doing. Also to verify that, you know, it was in fact written by the individual calling themselves the Unabomber. The FBI did verify that this manifesto had in fact been written by the individual calling themselves the Unabomber. One interesting thing about this manifesto is that Kaczynski goes to very great lengths to make it seem as though what he is doing is more than just the work of one individual. Now, the Attorney General at the time, Janet Reno, who was responsible for both Waco and Ruby Ridge, and the director of the FBI, Louis Free, both recommended that the newspapers publish this manifesto. And there was actually kind of something along the lines of a public discourse about the publication of this manifesto with some people for the publication of it, others against it. And interestingly enough, the Unabomber kept writing letters. In one, he stated that if one of these newspapers would in fact publish the manifesto, he would cease all terrorist activities. I have read some articles stating that it was believed that maybe this meant the individual responsible for this was going to take his own life. I've done a bit of extensive reading on Kaczynski, and I've read letters that he has written to friends of mine, and I've never encountered anywhere that during this period of time that was even remotely a consideration of Kaczynski. He simply wanted to get his ideas, which are brilliant, out to a larger audience as opposed to the audience of one that was himself and occasionally his brother, David. Now, 
the FBI Attorney General's office were twofold in recommending that it be published. One train of thought was, well, if he follows through with what he's telling us and we don't do it and he sends a mother bomb, people are going to die. If we do publish it and he's telling the truth, then he will stop his terror campaign. But they also thought that someone might recognize the ideas and the style of writing inside of this manifesto. And as this public discourse is going on, Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse Magazine, offers to publish the manifesto, to which Kaczynski replies in a letter that Penthouse is not respectable enough to carry his ideas. Stating, to increase our chances of getting our stuff published in some respectable periodical, they would reserve the right to plant one and only one bomb intended to kill after our manuscript has been published. Should Penthouse Magazine publish this manifesto as opposed to the Washington Post or the New York Times? And on September 19, 1995, the Washington Post publishes the Unabomber Manifesto. It was front page, I remember it. Uh, I actually remember seeing copies of it in my school. It was all over the news. And I'm going to read a few passages from the manifesto so you can kind of try and get an idea of the mindset of the man behind it. One, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. They have greatly increased the life expectancy of those of us who live in advanced countries, but they have destabilized society, have made life unfulfilling, have subjected human beings to indignities, have led to widespread psychological suffering in the third world to physical suffering as well, and have inflicted severe damage on the natural world. The continued development of technology will worsen this situation. It will certainly subject human beings to greater indignities and inflict greater damage on the natural world. It will probably lead to greater social disruption and psychological suffering, and it may lead to increased physical suffering even in advanced countries. 2. The industrial technological system may survive or it may break down. If it survives, it may eventually achieve a low level of physical and psychological suffering, but only after passing through a long and very painful period of adjustment and only at the cost of permanently reducing human beings and many other living organisms to engineered products and mere cogs in the social machine. Furthermore, if the system survives, the consequences will be inevitable. There is no way of reforming or modifying the system so as to prevent it from depriving people of dignity and autonomy. 3. If the system breaks down, the consequences will still be very painful, but the bigger the system grows, the more disastrous the results of its breakdown will be. So if it is to break down, it had best break down sooner rather than later. Four, we therefore advocate a revolution against the industrial system. This revolution may or may not make use of violence. It may be sudden or it may be a relatively gradual process spanning a few decades. We can't predict any of that, but we do outline in a very general way the measures that those who hate the industrial system should take in order to prepare the way for a revolution against that form of society. 
This is not to be a political revolution. Its object will be to overthrow not governments, but the economic and technological basis of the present society. Five, in this article, we give attention only some of the negative developments that have grown out of the industrial technological system. Other such developments we mention only briefly or ignore altogether. This does not mean that we regard these other developments as unimportant. For practical reasons, we have to confine our discussion to areas that have received insufficient public attention or in which we have something new to say. For example, since there are well-developed environmental wilderness movements, we have written very little about environmental degradation or destruction of wild nature, even though we consider these to be highly important. So that is the entirety of the introduction to... Industrial Society and its Future. Kaczynski further goes on to talk about how mankind is now pursuing unfulfilling pursuits, which he dubbed surrogate activities that lead us to artificial goals. He posits on the idea that the more technologically advanced we become, the more enslaved we will become, and this is not a political show. I am apolitical in every regard in my private life. He is correct on that if you look at society as it is today. The majority of people are very unhappy. Most of us live online, living artificial lives and chasing artificial dreams. And the more advanced we become Technologically, the more enslaved to it we become. Just go to your local supermarket and check out those self-checkout lines. You're enslaved to it because the corporations don't want to pay the workers to take care of it. They'd rather pay a maintenance guy to, for upkeep on it. While you, the consumer who goes into their store to purchase everything, must take care of every aspect of your order. That is a form of technological enslavement. And Kaczynski expounds upon these ideas exponentially inside of this article. And it's fascinating because it's the same things that many in our society today are talking about and are fearful of. Well, at the same time, our media and our government touts how great all of this stuff is. He also stated that the erosion of human freedom is the natural progression and a byproduct of a industrial society because, quote, the system has to regulate human behavior closely in order to function, stating over and over again that any form of reform to the system was an impossibility. He also stated that the system had not yet taken control over every aspect of human life. However, he believed that this was possible within the next 40 to 100 years. Now, Kaczynski does go on to shred the political left to a great degree inside of this manifesto. He stated that the primary drive of 
leftism is over-socialization and feelings of inferiority. But it should also be pointed out that Kaczynski rejected um, the right wing as well. As I stated, he believed, he didn't have a political side. He rejected both of them as being equally as bad. In one area of the manifesto, he stated the true anti-tech movement rejects every form of racism or ethnocentrism. This has nothing to do with tolerance, diversity, pluralism, multiculturalism, equality, or social justice. The rejection of racism and ethnocentrism is, pure and simple, a cardinal point of strategy. While further pointing out that he viewed fascism and Nazi ideology as both the, a kook ideology and evil. In one section, he describes conservatives as fools who whine about the decay of traditional values, yet unenthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. The manifesto was received by scholars as the work of an absolute genius. For the most part, there were detractors, but many saw the arguments put forth inside of this manifesto as being the work of someone with a massive IQ. Political science James Q. Wilson stated in an op-ed in the New York Times in 1998, If it is the work of a madman, then the writings of many political philosophers, Jean-Jacques Rougeau, Thomas Paine, Karl Marx, are scarcely more sane. The Unabomber does not like socialization, technology, leftist political causes, or conservative attitudes. As part from his call for an unspecified revolution, his paper resembles something that a very good graduate student might have written. Alston Chase, who if you'll remember, was the Harvard alumni who wrote the essay about Kaczynski in The Atlantic stated, It is true that many believed Kaczynski was insane because they needed to believe it, but the truly disturbing aspect of Kaczynski and his ideas is not that they are so foreign, but they are so familiar. We need to see Kaczynski as exceptional, madman or genius, because the alternative is so much more frightening. Now, the FBI had released some information prior to the publication of the manifesto. Specifically, they believed that the bomber may have been from the Chicago area, had close ties to Salt Lake City, as well as to the Bay Area in California. Also, prior to the publication of the manifesto, the FBI had allowed excerpts from the manifesto to be released to the public, and it was these excerpts in conjunction with the information that had been released by the FBI prior to all of this that led David Kaczynski's wife to inform him that, you know, that kind of sounds like your brother. If they publish this thing, you should read it. 
And that is exactly what happened. David Kaczynski read the manifesto, and after this, he contacted Susan Swanson, who was a private investigator out of the Chicago area, with explicit instructions to investigate both Ted's whereabouts as well as his activities. And this is because, as I stated earlier, upon reading the manifesto, it clicked inside of David's head of, holy shit, this sounds exactly like the stuff my brother has been saying for years. Not only that, some of this stuff is word for word. I can't imagine what David Kaczynski must have been feeling in that moment. I mean, I don't think there's anything even close to that, except for maybe learning that, you know, one of your loved ones, your brother, your sister, your one of your parents, is a serial murderer. Now remember, the manifesto is published in September of 1995. There's a pretty good-sized gap in between the manifesto's publication and Kaczynski's apprehension. And the reason for that is, A, David Kaczynski wanted to be absolutely certain that his brother was responsible. Some people might not be able to grasp this, but even to this day, David Kaczynski swear attests that he loved and loves his brother, Ted. I read a statement online one time by an individual who had interviewed David Kaczynski, and he basically said it was as though... Well, Ted got most of the intelligence, David got quite a bit of it himself. While Ted got no emotions, David got all of them. And I think that's a pretty true assessment as far as David Kaczynski goes. He's a very compassionate individual. And not only did he want to make certain that his brother was, in fact, responsible for this, he wanted to ensure that the attacks would stop, but he also wanted to make certain that his brother was taken into custody alive. You have to remember, at this point in time, late 1995, the massacre at Waco and at Ruby Ridge were not that far in the rearview mirror. In fact... They were weighing collectively on the minds of many Americans, particularly David, because he feared what the outcome might be if the FBI attempted to take his brother, to confront him, or to storm his cabin. So now, December of 1995 rolls around, and Susan Swanson she gets a treasure trove of writings from David Kaczynski of Ted Kaczynski's works, both things that had been published as well as things that had not been published, personal letters and other things that Ted had written and had hoped to have one day published. So now Swanson has all of this information and David Kaczynski goes and hires a lawyer out of Washington, D.C. by the name of Tony Biscogli. 
to organize this information as well as possibly contact the federal authorities should they come realize that, you know, in fact, Ted is the Unabomber. So one of this lawyer's investigators reaches out to a retired behavioral scientist for the FBI by the name of Clinton Van Zant who asks him to compare the manifesto with the letters that David had had. It should be noted, some sources state that the letters David turned over to this investigative team were typewritten off of the original handwritten notes that David had and that this was done in order so that they couldn't make a handwriting analysis. They simply had to go on the thoughts and words inside of the pages. I have found others that stated, in fact, that it was the original handwritten notes that David turned over. In any event, Van Zant returns with response of there was a better than 60% chance that the same individuals wrote these letters. After this, Van Zant looks has another group of investigators who he worked with look at these letters and they returned an even higher probability and it's at this point that Biskegli is informed that his client should more likely than not go to the FBI, which is exactly what David Kaczynski had hired the lawyer for, because he did not believe that the FBI would take him seriously, or would, in fact, even look into him. Unbeknownst to David and most of America, the FBI had no viable suspects for the Unabomber. Had David Kaczynski not come forward, it's very probable that Ted Kaczynski would never have been brought into custody because one piece of information that was held back is the fact that there were different fingerprints on the letters that were mailed as well as on the bombs and none of them matched Ted Kaczynski. Some of this has to do with the fact that Kaczynski wore gloves, others that he would have people handle the letters or the packages before he delivered them. How exactly he got them to do that, I am uncertain, but it's a fact that his fingerprints were nowhere on these packages and letters. Before you go jumping off the deep end, no, I'm not saying that there was a conspiracy, there's never been any evidence, nor has Ted Kaczynski ever stated that there was anybody involved in the attacks other than himself. Also from these letters, Van Zant's teams came to the conclusion that the individual who had written them was in his mid-40s to mid-50s, more likely than not had a doctorate and had withdrawn from society. David Kaczynski's lawyer then contacts an FBI agent by the name of Molly Flynn. He gets her a copy of an essay that Kaczynski had written in 1971. Flynn then forwards this essay to 
the San Francisco task force, and one of the members who was on that task force was a man by the name of James R. Fitzgerald. And it was quickly determined that the author of the manifesto and this essay were one and the same. And it was from all of this that the head of the investigation, Terry Churchy, was able to get an affidavit for a search warrant. So very quickly, the FBI finds out who the source of all this material is, and they arrange for a meeting between David, his wife, and their lawyer. And during this meeting and subsequent ones that come out of this, David gives them letters, including letters that were in their original envelopes, to the FBI. And with this, the FBI is able to further strengthen their case because they're able to look at the postmarks on these envelopes and match them to areas where crimes had been committed. Now, I'm not saying all of these envelopes matched an area where a bomb had been discovered or had gone off, but there was enough that they were able to place Ted Kaczynski in these areas during this period of time, along with what they suspected to be the movements of the Unabomber inside of that area during this time. So now a couple of things happen very quickly. The FBI assures David Kaczynski that, hey, your anonymity is safe with us. Nobody's going to find out about this. And right after they give him these assurances, the local media in Washington, D.C. learns of what's going on with the Unabomber and the fact that it's his brother who's turning him in. And they contact the FBI about this information, and the FBI is able to get them to give a 24-hour moratorium on them publishing this information while they try and get the affidavit finished and get out to Montana to arrest Ted Kaczynski. And that's one aspect of this case that I have a major problem with, is the fact that the news media... Believed now at this point, despite months earlier re realizing that national security far outweighed the public's right to know to go to the FBI with these affidavits, now they're putting headlines in front of national security and even more importantly, individual security by wanting to go public with this information that they have concerning the suspect in the Unabomber case, as well as the individual who's turning this suspect in. Now, in this affidavit that they wrote up for the search warrant, it should be noted that there is a reference to the possibility of other individuals having written the manifesto, and this was because not everyone on board agreed with the assertion that Ted Kaczynski was the sole author of the manifesto. You can find the manifesto online. I have to warn you, it's extremely long. Um, I've thought about including the majority of it in this podcast, 
but it's so long that I would be here for two or three episodes just reading it out. So instead, I'm going to recommend that if you really want to see what's inside of this affidavit, go online and search for it. It was written by Terry D. Turchi on April 3rd, and it gives a pretty comprehensive list of evidence found at each one of the bombing sites. So... The week of April 3rd, FBI agents had been descending upon Lincoln, Montana, working out ideas of how they were going to go about taking this man who had kept the country in the grip of fear for almost two decades. And it was decided that they would go in with extreme caution because... Nobody knew what Kaczynski had out at the property. They didn't know if he had booby traps or if he had weaponry like guns or bombs or any of that stuff set up. So prior to the actual takedown, the FBI kept Kaczynski under surveillance at his cabin. On April 3rd of 1996, the FBI moved in and arrested Kaczynski inside of his cabin without incident. Inside of the cabin, which was sparsely furnished, law enforcement officials found numerous bomb-making components, over 40,000 handwritten journal pages, some of which included descriptions for making bombs, and one at live bomb. They also discovered the handwritten manuscript for industrial society and its future. And they tore the inside of the cabin apart looking for further evidence, although they did preserve the Unabomber's cabin. And this was national news everywhere for days and weeks after the arrest of Ted Kaczynski. The suspect in the Unabomber case has been arrested. People began speculating both personally and in the media that Kaczynski might in fact be the Zodiac Killer. And they went from having somewhat of an admiration for Kaczynski with the publication of his manifesto to outright labeling him a mentally unstable maniac, a wild-eyed crazy person. And Kaczynski didn't help this by his appearance as when he was arrested, he was disheveled looking, he had wild hair and a beard. But that should be a give considering that he was living out in a cabin he had made with his own two hands in the middle of the wilderness. Kaczynski was held inside of a special cell. And in June of 1996, he was charged with 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, as well as various other crimes. Initially, Kaczynski was represented by two local public defenders, 
who had a psychiatrist look at Kaczynski and diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic, an assertion that has been roundly debated and dismissed by almost everyone who has had contact with Ted Kaczynski. Kaczynski's lawyers wanted to put in an insanity defense, which was something that Kaczynski roundly rejected. So much so that he attempted to have his lawyers dismissed, instead trying to switch them out for Tony Serra, who is a civil rights attorney, activist, and tax resistor, tax denier from San Francisco. Now, this was in 1998. The judge refused Kaczynski's request. And on January 9th of 1998, Ted Kaczynski attempted to kill himself using his underwear to try and hang himself. After this, he's placed on suicide watch. And now the talk of Kaczynski being a schizophrenic is really out there in the media because of this suicide attempt. It's believed by many that there's a possibility that Kaczynski's family may have helped fan these flames in an effort to try and spare Ted from receiving the death penalty as most psychologists who interviewed Ted in the intervening years from the time of his capture to the time of his death stated that he was nowhere close to being a schizophrenic. And they found him to be a very straightforward, deep-thinking, lucid individual. On January 21st, 1998, Kaczynski is found competent to stand trial with prosecutors moving to seek the death penalty. On January 22, 1998, Ted Kaczynski makes the unusual move and enters a guilty plea on all charges in order to avoid the death penalty. Now, Kaczynski would later try to withdraw this guilty please stating that the judge had coerced him into giving it however the judge overseeing things at this point denied his motion to appeal kaczynski ends up getting sentenced to eight life sentences without the possibility of parole and he is sentenced to serve his time at the adx supermax prison in florence colorado Something you have to ha imagine had to been a living hell for Ted Kaczynski given the fact that he so loathed technology and the Supermax prisons are the most technologically advanced prisons in the country. While he's in prison, Kaczynski befriends Timothy McVeigh along with Ramsey Youssef, who's the perpetrator of the first World Trade Center bombings. When McVeigh was executed, Kaczynski stated, On a personal level, I like McVeigh, and I imagine that most people would like him. Assuming that the Oklahoma City bombing was intended as a protest against the U.S. government in general, against the government's actions at Waco in particular, I will say that I think the bombing was a bad action, because it was unnecessarily inhumane. 
Kaczynski was fairly active while he was in prison. He wrote another book, which was a continuation of his manifesto, as well as carried on numerous correspondences with people around the world. As I've stated, I know people that were pen pals of Ted Kaczynski. I myself wrote him letters at one point just to try and speak to this individual and not so much understand the murders, but understand what it was that drove him to do the things that he did for his beliefs. Although, unfortunately, I never heard back from Kaczynski. Amazingly, too, he did give a number of interviews while he was in prison, and I say that's amazing given the fact that he was in a supermax prison, which generally does not allow interviews of inmates, particularly high-profile inmates. In 2011, Kaczynski was said to have been a person of interest in the Tylenol murders of Chicago, although Kaczynski denied his involvement and even went so far as to offer his DNA as well as to give his whereabouts during the time of those murders. However, he withheld this DNA in an effort to try and stop the FBI from auctioning off his personal property. Because what happened was there was a major lawsuit that against Ted by the family members of his victims which found him liable for somewhere around $12 million, and a judge decided that Ted's personal belongings could be auctioned off in it to go towards that judgment, provided certain parts were redacted, something that Kaczynski vehemently protested against as he felt that to redact any of his works was a violation of his right to free speech, although a judge did dismiss Ted's complaints. On December 14th of 2021, Kaczynski, by this point 79 years old, is transferred to the Federal Medical Center in Butner, North Carolina, as Kaczynski was diagnosed with cancer. On June 10th of 2023, Officers found Kaczynski unresponsive in his cell at the Federal Medical Center at 12.23 a.m. He was rushed to a nearby hospital and was found dead on arrival. Kaczynski was 81 years old. Initially, some were saying that he had died of old age, others that the government had killed him. A few of my friends who knew Kaczynski because they were his pen pals were very quick to point out that it's almost certain that Ted killed himself as he did not want to go out on the government's terms and he did not want the disease that was eating away at him to take his life. And in fact, the government released that Ted Kaczynski had, in fact, taken his own life. Although by what manner, we do not know. 
my guess is that he most likely hung himself. We are at the end of this episode. I hope you have enjoyed my series on the Unabomber. And again, if you're interested in reading about any of Kaczynski's stuff, it's pretty much in the public domain. You can find it fairly inexpensively anywhere online to purchase. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid. <laughs>